Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. Amy, did you did you find your wedding ring? You lost it again. I did. I did. I knew it was with my necklace because I had put my necklace through my wedding ring on purpose to like, so I wouldn't lose either of them. And then I lost both of them. And I hadn't found it for like two months. It was just under the bedside table. I ask because you've lost this ring numerous times. Mm-hmm. And this one seemed like it might be the end of the ring. And because it lasted months. But at no point did I think you wouldn't find it. Because this weird ring always finds its way home. Like the last time, weren't we in? We were in Utah. We in Utah. And, it, mm-hmm. and we left Utah with no ring. And not at your parents' place, Utah. We were in Monument Valley. Yeah, we had taken this trip through Monument Valley and Canyonlands and Arches and all Moab and all that. And uh, the last time I had seen it was in Monument Valley. And then we were gone. And then we were gone. In Monument (laughs) Valley. So you're thinking, you know, could have been out on our walk or our drive or in the hotel or whatever. And it was just gone. Yeah. And you tracked it down. I did. I called all the places we had stayed and um, one of the housekeeping uh, staff had found it, and they FedExed it to my parents' house in Salt Lake. And then it made its way here. And then it made its way to so, Seattle. So this keeps happening. Then one of the other ones was when you were doing was Gross Lab, Gross Anatomy, when you were cutting up cadavers. And, <laughs> I, do not, I, I do not miss I did days. not lose my wedding ring in a cadaver. Hey, sweetie, um, how was your day? Oh, I cut this head open and looked at a brain. I'm like, oh, what'd you do? I, I played Pearl Jam. Anyway. <laughs> so our day no, good. Gross Lab was incredible. Uh, my favorite day was the day we bone sawed through the chest and took the hearts out. But anyways, um, mm. I never wear my wedding ring. She does not. <laughs> I'm married. But, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like we're very, we trust each other very much. and We have a great marriage. And John, you know, I think he would prefer I wear it, but I just never wear it. And um, I have no opinion on it. <laughs> I really don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> And it's kind of this joke. He says, oh, where's your ring? I'm like, I don't know. Are we still married? Yes. And and we always say that. Um, In medical school, I learned the hard way never to wear your wedding ring. Because uh, what were we doing? We were doing something with blood and guts and whatever. And I had taken my gloves off and they had blood on them. So that meant they had to go in the biohazard. And... Then I, you know, was hanging up my lab coat and leaving the lab and um, I didn't have my wedding ring on. And I ran back to the lab and spoke with my professor and we determined that it was probably in the biohazard in my gloves. But at that point, because I, this is a little bit like a couple hours later, um, the biohazard had already been taken out and put with the big biohazard and she and I suited up in like biohazard gear and we had to go dig through the biohazard it's like needles and blood and gross things and we found it and it was in my glove wasn't in a body it wasn't in a body nope just in a glove hey hey hey
Today on The Doctor and the DJ, we talk to Dr. Nicole McNichols, Associate Teaching Professor at the University of Washington and teaches the largest and most popular undergraduate course at the UW, Psych 210, Diversity of Human Sexuality. We also will be spotlighting one of the best records from Seattle this year, Lunatic House from the band Spirit Award, and we learn about a thing called Manopause. So, Amy, I, I tend to wear my ring every day, but I'm more OCD and I feel really weird when it's not on my finger, you know, like I, I can't imagine it not being on my finger. Um, and yours, you have an allergic reaction to the ring, too. So I'm that is not symbolic of our marriage, by the way, I don't think. <laughs> there's no, it's white gold. And so there's some uh, nickel in there and I'm allergic to the nickel. Yeah. Rings are funny and interesting to me that we exchange rings. I know there's a whole tradition there when you get married and, and we have a history with rings as well. I think of my mom and her wedding ring later. I didn't know this at the time. We lived in Sioux City, Iowa, and we had this deck and, and there was a little forest right by, I think the only forest in Iowa apparently was right by our backyard. But anyways, at some point, uh, my mom just hucked the ring into the forest. And my dad said something like, that was my, you know, grandmother's ring or whatever. And she's like, then go find it. And that bastard apparently was out there in the woods for hours. Did he have one of those metal detector thingies? (laughs) Like, beep, beep, beep. He was probably out there with his Roman Coke looking for this ring, wondering (laughs) where his life went wrong. He deserved it. Uh, Never found that ring. So if you're ever in the Sioux City, Iowa area, there is a a valuable ring of some sort somewhere in the forest. Um, You you were just telling me before we turn on the mics about your mom and the... Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of linked to my birth this whole issue with wedding rings and getting lost and stuff. My mom lost her wedding ring and she was someone who wore it every single day. She lost her wedding ring the day she found out she was pregnant with me. So I don't know, take that in whatever direction of belief system you want. Did she she find it? So she offered to my older siblings that they could have anything they wanted if they found it, anything they wanted. I mean, and, and you know, they were small children they weren't thinking like i need a car car. or something um (laughs) and my older sister sherry found it when i was in the hospital being born this is a true story so i had to stay in the hospital for a couple days because i was very jaundiced and they were you know determining if i was gonna have a blood transfusion or whatever you know and so i was in the hospital a couple of days when i was born and during that time my sister sherry found it in the shag carpet in my mother's closet What'd she ask for? What'd she get? She asked for a Barbie beauty set. <laughs> she could have aimed so much higher. I know. So she got my the- mom even said, Really? That's what you want? Okay. Well, now that you're a parent, <laughs> imagine saying that. And they're like, I would like ice cream. Done. Yeah. Thank you for not asking for a car. So I don't know what that means, but you know, my entire life is linked to misplacing wedding rings. Well, you know, we're going to be talking to uh, Dr. Nicole McNichols about relationships and monogamy and marriage and all of that. And you and I were both divorced prior. We had starter marriages. We had starter marriages. Yep. That were each total disasters. And there were rings involved, um, (laughs) of course. (laughs) And when you're younger too, like I probably in that marriage when I was younger and, and dumb and 
and really just not confident. It's really your own confidence, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of symbolic, right? If she didn't wear, I don't remember if she did or not, she probably didn't. But um, I would probably think like I'd be jealous or, oh, you're, you don't want so, people to know we're married. Something was wrong Yeah, like you yeah. don't want people to know you're married would, would probably be my dumb thought, which I've never once had with you ever. Uh, we're pretty clear that we're, you know, together. Um I think that has to do with age and maturity. And in a way, that's why I think that first marriage did us a lot of good. And I'm trying to find silver linings in that shit show. But I think it did help me, though, grow up and understand how to be in a relationship, even a difficult one like that. But the rings would be very symbolic of that. But I had this big, obnoxious, like three ring circus. (laughs) I guess that was Wow, wow, that was symbolic of that, your marriage. I've never thought of that until I I just said that. But it was three it was three rings in one, so it really was a three ring circus. It was a pain in the ass. This thing was huge. It just like took over my whole hand, mm-hmm. which again is probably symbolic now that I'm sitting here talking to everyone about it. Um, and you had a ring. Mine was just a band. Yeah, but your your other band. I remember you had another ring though, and it ended up, up like my mom off the ferry. Yeah, you threw it off a boat. Hucked it off the ferry. Yeah, it didn't fall off your finger. You <laughs> hucked it off into the ferry. So this is why my mom would have loved you. I purposefully lost that one. Yeah. So if, again, if you're in the Puget Sound area and but you're But then looking- we reconciled and I got a, a band, a single band. I was like, you know. Okay. But so, the jewels, the first one had jewels. It was, it's in the Puget Sound. Yeah. So again, if you follow the Richards around, you will find valuable <laughs> rings located around this country. You just follow me around. I'll lose my ring at some point. That's true. Um, and then you can return it. Um, and so- we had these rings when you and I got married that were from our old marriages. And, and again, like, what do you, what do you do with these things? It's like your old wedding photos. Like you want, like, why do I, I it's still have your some, life. Well, this is part of my life. And there's people in those photos, like my mom and some of my friends and some people who are no longer with us anymore um, that I want to keep. But I don't like, I could throw away all my parts of the right. wedding. Well, it's, it's part of your past. Yeah. Right. And our child was from that first marriage. That's true. So it's, you know. It's just, it's part of your life. It's part of your past. But what did we do with those rings, John? Oh, well, um, we decided, <laughs> we decided we were going to pawn these rings and we, we like, we went it, up Aurora to the yeah, pawn shop. That's right. Cause yeah, went up Aurora. Um, and we decided we're going to pawn these, but the question then becomes, if you're like us, what do you do? With what the do money? you do with the money? This is a particular set of money that shouldn't exist. We deserve something. From the shit show that was those marriages. So you took me to the pawn shop, you got the cash, and immediately... Went to the liquor store. You resupply... You know the <laughs> liquor where you can't get yourself to spend, you know, like the... No, we bought some nice... That's what I'm saying. ...bottles because... Yeah. Why not? You know, you never drink that booze. And- yeah, I'm not going to put $100 on a bottle of booze or something, but with with old wedding rings that are, that are pawned from these bad marriages, and we can start ours with this nice liquor cabinet... Genius so what have we learned? We learned I need a new wedding ring that doesn't have nickel in it oh, that I'm going to lose anyway. Yep. Um, <laughs> if you don't know what to do with rings from past marriages, you can pawn them for booze. That's right. And there are valuable jewelry in the Puget Sound and the forest, forest of-, of Sioux City, Iowa. Here's a little more Spirit Award. This is from the Lunatic House album, that great band from Seattle we've been spotlighting throughout this podcast.
We are joined today by Nicole McNichols, who's an associate teaching professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she also received her PhD in social psychology. Over the past six years, Nicole has built her class, The Diversity of Human Sexuality, into the University of Washington's largest and most popular undergraduate course in its history, with over 3,000 enrolled students each year. Her current research focuses on teaching methods designed for human sexuality, and in 2019, she delivered a TED Talk entitled Students on Top. A Guide to 21st Century Sex Education. Great title. Nicole is frequently a guest lecturer and speaker regarding topics in human sexuality. She was at the forefront of the University of Washington's push to adopt and develop active learning techniques and technologies to bring scientific subject matter to life in the classroom. She's an active member of a variety of societies for teaching human sexuality and is a three-time Distinguished Teaching Award nominee. We are both UW grads, and I do not remember this class because I'm pretty sure I would have been in it, and so would have my wife, I have no doubt. So, Nicole, welcome to the Doctor and the DJ podcast. Thank How are you? you? I'm great. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you. And uh, Amy um, had so many questions. We want to get to them right away, if you don't mind. I know. I have so great. many. I just want to get right into it. But first of all, Let's go Huskies. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> and we should mention Huskies. Are, we have a new dog. And throughout this podcast, people are probably going to hear our dog. We've decided not to hide the fact that we, we do this at home and we have a dog at home. I also have a dog, so it is possible I will have the same issue, but uh, I love that we all love dogs here, so I think we should be good. <laughs> so, Nicole, I wanted to ask you how you got into being the sex professor at the University of Washington. Like, what brought you to that field? That is a great question because it is not the case that I grew up as a young person thinking that I was going to be a sex educator. It really is something that I kind of um, found myself in almost by accident. Um, so I was in graduate school. I got my PhD at the University of Washington in 2009. And during that time, I was in the social psychology department, um, but frequently would be a teaching assistant for Lois McDermott, who taught this course before me for about 40 years, I think. And uh, I really developed quite a close relationship with her. She really kind of mentored me in a variety of topics, even though sexuality was not an area that I was actively researching. It just was a class and her style of teaching was something that really kind of inspired me and I felt like I had a lot to learn from her. And so then flash forward a number of years and I am a new faculty hire within the Department of Psychology at UW and Lois, has an accident and she falls and she breaks her leg. And this is literally two weeks before winter quarter is about to start. And the department is kind of freaking out because there are 400 students who are enrolled to start taking this course and they have no one to teach it. So being the new person in the department and wanting to prove that I was a team player and that I would teach whatever it was they needed me to teach, uh, I volunteered. And I really uh, felt like it was one of those situations where literally the night before each lecture, it would be Lois and I on the phone with her basically downloading whatever the next day's lecture was into my brain. You know, I describe it a little bit to, um, you know, people like actors who are in movies where they have fight scenes and in the scene, it looks like they really know what they're doing, but it's only because they've memorized that 
particular sequence of events. I felt the same way in my lectures. I sounded like I knew a lot about what I was talking about, but it was only because I had really learned that particular lecture very deeply. Uh, so you could say I had a bit of imposter syndrome. Um, but then I had an amazing time teaching it. The course evaluations were really positive. Uh, and then a year later, Lois said, you know, I'm going to retire and I'd love for you to take the course over for me. And, uh, you know, I had just found that I had such a connection to the students. It was really a course where I felt like I was helping students so much. I think that the college years are such a time when uh, students are really discovering themselves, their identity, their own sexuality. And um, so, yeah, it was something that I enjoyed teaching for a variety of reasons. And the, the timing just kind of worked out. So here I am. <laughs> So it wasn't, you didn't like dream of being a sex prof as a little girl. It was more nope. like you sort of fell or Lois fell. <laughs> yeah, you, you, stumbled, <laughs> you stumbled on it and grabbed it and ran and it sort of chose yeah. you in a way. Yes, I would say it chose me. Exactly. So I would imagine there's a lot of misconceptions about sex at that age. Oh, and a lot yeah. of diverse misconceptions. So what would you say are the top misconceptions about sex? Well, I think that a lot of the misconceptions that I encounter about sex stem from the fact that there really has not been any kind, there, there is not federally mandated sex education. So the decision about whether students are going to receive any kind of sex education in either middle or high school is left entirely up to the states. And until November of last year, there was no state mandated sex education in Washington. And so what that meant is that the majority of students who were coming into my class really had no background, really had no understanding. So the misconceptions oftentimes just came from the result that they were growing up in families or cultures or towns or, you know, just geographical regions where sex was really viewed as this taboo subject, where you didn't talk about sex, where there was a lot of shame that really enshrouded it. And so, for example, they would come into the class thinking that I often get the question of, you know, is masturbation bad? And if I masturbate, is that going to make me not desire having an actual real partner? So we talk a lot about masturbation in my class. And actually, there is strong research showing that people who masturbate actually have more and more satisfying sex with their actual partners, that it's not something that detracts at all from their sex life, you know, in real life, IRL. Uh, and it's something that um, actually is correlated with self-confidence and that it is a positive thing, not something that you should shy away from or think is bad. And it's important to do to, you know, understand your body, to understand yourself, to understand what feels good to you, because until you understand your own body and what is going to satisfy you personally, how on earth are you going to connect with a partner and be able to communicate those needs and desires and wants and fantasies to them? Um, and then the other area that I really see kind of fueling a lot of these misconceptions just comes from pornography. So the average age now that children start watching porn is 11, which is somewhat astounding. Um, and if you think about the types of images and things that kids are seeing on porn now, they do not in any way represent reality. So 
I also teach my class, I am not against porn if it is made and delivered in an ethical way, meaning if it involves actors and actresses or of whatever gender who are actively participating in a way where they are happy to be doing what they're doing, where they're being paid a fair wage, where they're not being forced to do things that are against their will. Porn can be a wonderful way to enjoy fantasy and, again, to kind of explore what is it that excites you, but it is not meant to reflect reality. So I see a lot of students coming in whose really main you know, exposure to sexuality topics has been by watching porn, and so they think that women are supposed to have huge, enormous breasts and that men are supposed to have huge, enormous penises and that for sex to be really good, it needs to be aggressive and it needs to be, you know, kind of confirming these dysfunctional gender stereotypes that, you know, fuel our society of how women and men want to be treated and and that it goes on for hours and that, you know, the woman is going to have multiple orgasms easily the first time. And it just kind of sets up these expectations that, yeah, if you're looking at it as a fantasy, that's great. But if you're going to be measuring your own real experience against that as a model, you're going to be deeply disappointed, right? And you're you're not going to really have a sort of an idea of what people want and how real communication works. So yeah, so I would say main misconceptions just come from what real bodies look like, what real sex looks like, what masturbation looks like. And, you know, pretty much every topic that we could talk about is <laughs> imbued with misconceptions when it comes to sexuality. Sadly, just as a, a result of the kind of society we live in, which is that people don't like to talk about it. Everyone's so embarrassed about it that everyone kind of usually harbors these ideas that just don't really reflect reality. So, Have you been teaching this uh, class through the pandemic? I have. That, that gets me to what you just talked about, because I have to assume on the pornography and on the masturbation tip, there's got to be a lot of that going on right now, because there is... I it mean, is... there's a lot of alone time yeah. right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting, you see things like Pornhub, you know, opening up. I mean, they definitely benefited from the pandemic and, you know, kind of had a, a series of clever ads out about how, you know, they were going to um, open up their, their a lot of their offerings for free. I don't, I don't know exactly what the terms were, but uh, yeah, I think that people are masturbating more. And I think that there is, it's really interesting to see how technology has kind of played a role in all of this, because I think that there has been a lot more of, you know, I get a lot of questions from students who are trying to stay connected to significant others who are in, you know, different places and they're both quarantined at home. And so how do you use, whether it be FaceTime or whatever, you know, technology you're using to kind of maintain that connection and to be able to have some kind of sexual experience where it may not be in person, but at least it, you know, it's coming closer than, than you know, simply being on the phone. Um, but the other thing I've really seen with the pandemic that's just so disheartening is, you know, at this particular age, it's just so important for developmentally, you know, kids slash young adults to be out there meeting people, figuring out the kind of people they're attracted to, developing the types of social skills that, you know, are necessary for flirting and forming relationships, whether they be for a one night stand or a long term multi year relationship. And students are being denied those experiences and they're lonely. I mean, I've just talked to a lot of students who are very lonely and who are also, frankly, just suffering from touch deprivation. I mean, simply being at home and not being able to have any kind of physical contact with 
other people who you would normally be able to at least even just hug or, you know, have any kind of contact with is, you know, a real form of serious deprivation. So is there research out there? Is there um, information on what happens to people when they have a year without human touch? Well, um, there are not particular studies on a whole year. But there was an interesting, uh, very famous social psychological study that was known as Harlow's Monkeys. And so Harlow was the experimenter. And, you know, a lot of research that we see that's done on human behavior, a lot of it, you know, first kind of, if it would be sort of, if there would be ethical questions performing it on human beings, sometimes we'll perform it with monkeys in more controlled settings. So in this particular setting, what they did is they had a mommy monkey and the mommy monkey had a bunch of baby monkeys and they wanted to know, you know, what, what are sort of the most basic primal needs of the baby monkeys. And so what they did is they created a cage that kind of had two little compartments and in one compartment, they put just a wire kind of shape of a monkey covered in cloth and it had food and water with it. And then in the other compartment, they had a wire monkey, but this monkey was warm and it had like a little um, ticking thing that made it sound like it had like a little heartbeat and it was really cozy, but it didn't have food and water. And they found that all the baby monkeys gravitated towards the warm, fuzzy mommy that had the heartbeat rather than (laughs) the one that had food and water. So what that means is that this need for touch and comfort and nurturing is almost even more primal than, you know, that for food and water. I mean, it really is high up there. So yeah, there has been a lot of research showing that, you know, touch is absolutely essential, that, that we are, you know, social beings by nature, and that that is really something that, you know, it kind of comes right above food and water in terms of how badly we need it. Well, I worry about everybody coming out of this pandemic and just going just crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's just, oh, I know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I don't even have a question. I just, I'm just wondering, you know, I, I, I hope so. I hope yeah, everyone well, goes crazy. I mean, <laughs> I hope everyone's having as much safe consensual sex as they possibly can and want to and desire. So, uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, I mean, the other side of that is everyone's so used to in this like camera off mode, are students going to come back in to campus in the fall and feel like everything's very awkward and that they've been away from other students for so long that they have kind of forgotten how to interact with each other? Uh, I'm hoping we'll, if that happens, we'll all get over that stage quickly, though, and it'll just be a giant party, but we'll see. <laughs> You know, we've been talking about this pandemic and um, we were talking about pornography and masturbation. And if when we come out of this pandemic, if we're all just going to basically have a big giant orgy or not, or, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. And (laughs) but I wanted to um, go back a little bit to porn and talk about, you know, as a woman, right? women are characterized very differently in sex in our culture, right? Like women are, are, and especially in purity culture. So I was raised in like a very religious family where it was all about no sex before marriage, masturbation's bad. Like I I didn't know, you know, I was definitely like a victim of purity culture, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's that whole uh, slut shaming women and like women aren't supposed to love sex and, And I think that sends so many confusing messages to women who do love sex and who do want to participate in it. And I think it feeds non-consensual sex because they don't know how to advocate for their own sexuality and advocate for their sex and they don't understand consent. And then going back to what you were saying about pornography, it's rare 
in pornography that you see a consensual conversation happen, right? So there's a lot of like aggression in the pornography. I'm so happy to hear you make that connection between sort of the lack of, you know, a, a sort of permission that we give to women to express their desire for sex, to be honest about their desire for sex, to be able to be authentic and feel confident about being sort of forthcoming. And the fact that we have so much non-consensual sex happening because, you know, essentially what's happening is we're teaching women that they, they shouldn't be honest about what they want and what they need. And yes, there are so many stereotypes out there that suggest, oh, women aren't supposed to want sex as much as men, that men are supposed to be the ones that desire sex. And that's simply not true, right? Women have, you know, just as much of a sex drive and just as much of a right to have positive, happy sexual experiences as men do, as all genders do. And, and I think that we're really setting up problems in our culture if we teach women that they're supposed to be coy and they're supposed to be shy and they're not supposed to be honest about that. Because, you know, again, then it's back to this problem of, well, how do you communicate when you do versus you don't actually want to have a sexual experience? And so if we're teaching women that they should always be saying no, and if we're teaching partners of women that even if a woman is saying no, she may actually mean yes, it's just that she has to always say no, then how do we know what anyone ever means, right? And how do we know what, you know, how to interpret any kind of a response. And, you know, of course, the answer to that needs to be that no always means no, and that maybe always means no. But we have to give women permission to also say, yes, I would love to go home and have amazing sex with you tonight, right? And, and enjoy that and not feel guilty about it. Um, there's a Christmas song that I play every year for my students, even when it's not around Christmas time, that is Baby It's Cold Outside. Mm. And that song. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and people get really worked up about this, right? Because for a lot of people, that's their favorite Christmas song. But go onto YouTube and Google Baby It's Cold Outside and listen to the lyrics. And you can even watch the little video that, you know, that, that goes with it from the movie that it came from. And it is a it is a song and a scene of sexual assault. I mean, it is essentially a woman who's saying she wants to go home and her partner saying, no, 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 baby, it's cold outside. You need to stay here. But again, there's sort of this confusion of, well, she seems like she wants to stay, but does she want to go home? And is she saying she wants to go home because she feels like it? But no matter what, if she's saying she wants to go home, the male partner is still kind of trying to, you know, almost bully her into staying. Um, so I love the Kelly Clarkson. Why am I Kelly Clarkson. blanking on her? Kelly Clarkson. Thank you. And John Legend, they do a fantastic remake of that song where... They, you know, he keeps saying to her, if you want to go home, you should go home. It's your body, your choice. You should enjoy it. It's a really charming song. And at the end of it, she decides to stay, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the irony of all this is that if you, if people have permission to say what they want and to be honest about their sexual needs and desires and wishes, then everyone wins, right? And then it, it means that we can say no to the sex that we don't want to have and that we can say yes to the sex that we do want to have. And I think these communication problems that often lead to these really bad situations are just, you know, kind of get cut down. So that takes me to something like BDSM. Mm -hmm. So I'm of the belief that it can be a really great healing space for people, mm -hmm. whether yeah. you're a dom or not, or whether you're submissive or depending on which role you, you 
prefer and that it's a place where people can access healing like yeah. real healing of some deep wounds and that can span not just sex and wounds with sex but wounds in their life or give them like a safe place and i just wanted to know what your take on all that was yeah and what you're saying is actually really backed by the research so bdsm can be a safe place where people reenact scenes and oftentimes may even reenact traumatic scenes from their own life where now they can kind of control what the outcome is going to be it's almost kind of like the ultimate cognitive reframing of thinking well i'm going this time i'm going to live through this and i'm going to be able to kind of change it in this way and have control in the same situation and get myself back into my own body in this situation and um you know that's we i talk a lot about bdsm in my course and i have a lot of students report to me that they've had that very experience you've talked about you know i see i definitely think bdsm is much more common now than it was even 5 10 15 years ago i actually have a whole panel of guests who come to speak in my class every quarter uh who talk about bdsm and their experiences in it and i think that you know when you mentioned misconceptions you know again i think there's this idea that BDSM looks like what it does in the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Which is <laughs> right. actually involves a lot of sort of you know power differences that really yeah, and non consensual bullying situations. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and so that is not what BDSM looks like, right? Like BDSM, when practiced the way it's supposed to be practiced, is safe it's consensual it has two people who have are coming together who have the same amount to gain to lose um there's really good communication probably even better communication than you'd find in non-bdsm sexual experiences there are safe words so that people know when you should stop something versus when you want something to keep going and yeah, I think that that all kind of introduces this element of control and safety that can absolutely be very healing for a lot of people. Just for our listeners who may not know what BDSM is, can you tell us what it is? Yes, of course. I guess I should have started with that. Um, well, the irony is that no one is really quite sure what BDSM stands for. There are a lot of options. So B <laughs> is bondage. Typically, everyone agrees that B is bondage. I think D is actually usually the dominant. And then S is like <laughs> sadism. And then M is usually for like masochism. But they're all different sorts of variations on those words. But essentially, it's power play. So usually one person kind of takes on the role of being the more dominant person, and then the other person will take on the role of being the more submissive person. And it is about two people who are usually playing out some sort of scene where one person is explicitly following the instructions. Usually the person who's being dominated is following out the instructions explicitly of the person who's giving the instructions. And so this might involve things like whips or chains or tying people up or using a variety of different types of sex toys. Even though one person within the scene is always following the instructions of the other person, there is a safe word. So for example, there could be a scene that two people are acting out and maybe the code word is red, but the code word can be anything. It could be spaghetti. Uh, and so if you yell out spaghetti, the scene stops and it's a sign from one person that they just don't want things to continue. And people who participate in this, they report going into something called subspace, which is um, almost like this endorphin rush that you get from being in this place psychologically when you're acting out these roles. And what I when I talk about BDSM in my class, it's 
you know, it's interesting because people may think that this is something that only some people practice, right? That, that it's a, just this kind of strange, weird thing that only exists among people who are into, you know, chains and whips. But actually, the psychology behind it really shows up in common threads throughout all of our lives, right? It's really about kind of understanding what your limits are and sort of this desire that is really is kind of quite primal in all of us, which is to sort of see how far can we be pushed, right? How high can you jump? How hard can you run? You know, how, you know, can, what happens when you get pushed to your extremes? Because that's really what's happening in a BDSM relationship is you're taking things, you know, whether it's inflicting pain right up to the point where a person is at that limit, right? There's something really exciting and exhilarating about that for some people that is, you know, not just related to sex, but can also be related to people's desires to kind of understand their own limits and their own human experience. So, you know, and then just a lot of people who, for example, enjoy being in the more submissive roles, oftentimes those are the same people who feel like they have a lot of responsibilities in life, that they're in charge of making a lot of decisions. And so, you know, being in a position where you're being told sexually exactly what to do and when to do it can feel really, you know, different and exciting and also relaxing to that person. Uh, and vice versa for the person who's in control. I mean, there's something really exhilarating about being the person who's sort of calling all the shots and deciding exactly what your sex slave is going to be doing for you and with you. So, um, yeah, so I I think it's something that being, you know, I see being explored more and more by my students. And it has, I think, a lot of benefits. It's, you know, most people during their lives will try out some kind of kinky sex. So it's, uh, I think, a lot more common than people realize. So in, at that age, you know, a lot of people maybe aren't in relationships and maybe have more freedom to explore that. Um, do you talk about relationships and how to explore your sexuality within that relationship? Because it is, it is so difficult for people if they have this. I, I can't imagine how many relationships have ended because someone had a desire or someone had you know, something in their world where they felt guilty about it or they acted on it outside of their marriage without talking to their partner. And it's taken me years to figure out exactly who I am as a sexual being, like what my preferences are and what, and because I never took a class or were like almost were given permission that this was okay to talk about. And I, so I imagine if I had taken your class, I would have helped uh, in college. It may have uh, helped for when I was in a relationship and able to talk to a person. Do, so what is your advice to people when they, when they have they know they have this desire they want. Maybe they want to try BDSM or maybe they're attracted to the same sex or maybe they have a fantasy and they're just either embarrassed or they think it's going to end their marriage. Well, I, you know, sexual communication is absolutely key. You know, first of all, I highly recommend having these conversations, not when you're having sex, but when you're doing something that's totally <laughs> non-sexual, good, good. like doing the dishes. Good right? answer. And yep. so, <laughs> you know, go to IHOP, like that's the best place to have <laughs> conversations about sex, someplace that where, you know, sex would be the last thing on your mind. And, you know, it's just about being honest, right? And being able to, you know, understanding that, you know, hey, let's go talk to each other about things that we might enjoy or that could be fun to try out, you know, and maybe we can talk about things that I want to do and talk about things that you want to do. And uh, for example, I had a great guest speaker who came from the sex toy shop Babeland and what she described was go through and make a list and decide, you know, go through the different things and decide what's in your yes list, what's in your hard no list, and then what's in your maybe list. And, you know, 
it's interesting. You're, you know, your question about, you know, well, what happens if there's something that you really want to try out that uh, your partner is just really set against? And that can be a roadblock for a lot of couples and something that's sort of, you know, hard to navigate. And because it's really important for, you know, both partners to really understand and be compassionate about what the other person is asking for and what about the other person's limits are. And I think it's important to, you know, in those situations, try to explain exactly what it is that is the fantasy and how you could see it you know, being fulfilling and then allowing the other person space to talk about, you know, I think that would be really fun. I think we should try it out versus, well, here's what I'm worried about, right? Because it might be that through talking about, okay, well, what are your actual concerns and, and anxieties? Are there ways to come up with creative solutions so that you don't have to worry about those things, that, that, that those things are kind of taken care of, right? Are there ways to kind of, you know, make a compromise with whatever the sexual fetish is or the thing is that you want to try out so that it, it kind of works for everyone where it can be explored but still feel safe for everyone involved. And then there are plenty of couples who may decide that really what the right answer is for them is to open up their marriage, right? So, you know, I knew one couple where the uh, husband, he identified himself, uh, this was his word, was that he felt like he was an autogonophile, which is someone who is typically a heterosexual male, but who fantasizes that they have, you know, breasts and a vulva and a vagina. And he fantasized that during sex that he would be a woman and wanted his wife to take on more of the male role. And she, you know, they were very frank and very honest in this conversation. And, you know, she said, I don't really feel comfortable. That's not something that turns me on. And so they came to the decision that they could open up the marriage. And so he's now able to have these sexual experiences where he's able to imagine that he has this feminine body. And he can have those sexual experiences for the, for that outlet. And then he's able to come back and have other types of sexual experiences with his wife. And that works for them. Now, having an open marriage is not going to be a solution for a lot of people. But my point is just that there can be creative solutions here where it doesn't have to be, oh, well, you don't want to do this. Well, then the relationship's over and we both need to move on. You know, typically with some sort of thought and Again, I keep coming back to this idea of creativity. You can find a way where everyone really gets what they want. <laughs> so on that tip, how do you, what is your thought on the status quo? Like this cis-gendered, heteronormative, monogamous <laughs> status quo. And do you think that that's um, harmful? I do think it's harmful in, you know, this idea. So, uh, you know, just to kind of clarify, I think for your listeners, what you mean by that is, uh, you know, we live in this culture when we say heteronormative, um, what we're talking about is this assumption that the best type of relationship is one that's between a man and a woman, and particularly one where the man takes on more of kind of the more male gendered role, whereas the female, you know, and whereas the female takes on more of kind of the role of like the wife or the girlfriend or the more female oriented role. And yeah, hey, that works great for a lot of people. And the problem is that we've come to a place where 
we norm that and we suggest that it's superior to every other type of relationship. And that's really harmful uh, because that is simply not the model that works for a lot of people. Uh, you know, you have all sorts of people who identify and understand that they are a you know gender that is not, you know, quote unquote, congruous with their biology. You might have a person who has certain, you know, genitals or, uh, you know, certain chromosomes that you know, the, led the doctor to call out one gender at birth, but they identify as something completely different as an adult. You have people who have all different types of sexual orientations. Uh, you have people who are polyamorous, meaning that they aren't simply attracted to or want to be in a relationship with just one person, but want to be in relationships with multiple partners. I have a whole panel of polyamorous individuals who come and speak in my class, and they're some of the most articulate people I know. They are really able to explain how that relationship structure for them really fulfills their needs and makes them really happy. So I think, again, we have to get out of this mindset of thinking, oh, well, that relationship, that model of, you know, a, a man and a woman, you know, in a monogamous relationship for life, that's going to work great for a lot of people. But for a lot of people, it's just going to lead to a lot of unhappiness. And if it's, you know, if we don't give people sort of the flexibility to find the types of relationships that work for them, we're just going to be causing a lot of harm. We're not going to be, you know, it, it makes no sense to be forcing everyone into this one mold. Yeah, I find that, you know, as a doctor, I have this really, and you might find this too, people might confide in you a lot, you know, like having that doctor mm -hmm. relationship with people. Yeah. And they'll tell me the truth about their sex or their relationships or whatever. And I always get this big smile on my face because I hear it all the time. Like right. what I hear... <laughs> <laughs> like behind closed doors as like that uh, vulnerable doctor-patient relationship is actually more normal than what people right. think. And, you know, and I think about this a lot, how the status quo is just so committed to that um, model. And it's so harmful because person after person after person, that that is not normal. That is not right. their norm at all. Exactly. And so you even wonder for so many people who are in that type of relationship, how well is it working, right? I mean, for mm -hmm. some people, it's working great. But if you're just going along in life miserable in the type of relationship you're in, because you feel like that's the only option, and that's, you know, if you're not in that type of heteronormative relationship, that there's something wrong with you, that's hugely problematic. But I think you're right. And I think even for couples who are, uh, you know, look, I am um, a cis woman. I'm married to a cis man. I'm in a monogamous relationship. I have three children. Uh, you know, you would look at my relationship and think, yep, heter you know, heteronormative all the way. But that doesn't mean that it follows a, a script. It has to be authentic to who you are, to who your partner is, to, um, you know, your own individual needs and desires. And, you know, it can't just be, you know, my husband cooks dinner every night. He's a, you know, an amazing cook. And, you know, I, I don't cook. <laughs> um, we both have really busy jobs. You know, we both engage in childcare. You know, the idea that you're just going to kind of divide up all of the duties within, you know, within a household, according to gender is typically going to lead to, I think, a lot of misery. I think there, there really needs to be some thought around, you know, how you're going to kind of I don't want to say get everything done. That makes it sound like a business arrangement, but <laughs> just what your well, relationship it is, is going sometimes. to look and feel like. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> so I often talk about how humans are the only animals who don't think that they're animals. 
<laughs> what is your take on on that? I mean, you know, so we can talk about agreements in relationships, right? You know, people have established agreements in relationships, and some of those agreements would be like a monogamous relationship. But that doesn't mean that there isn't attraction to other people <laughs> and other genders, and there isn't that going on. And I find it healthy for people who are in relationship to talk about those things freely. That, you know, to yeah. like talk mm-hmm. about it and and normalize it because I feel like it's normal. And then people get very, they get into the jealousy and they get sort of envious and they start, you know, I think it's kind of unhealthy to not acknowledge the sort of natural attraction that you might have to people. So, you know, you started out with this idea of we're the only animal that doesn't realize that we're that we're an animal. And that's really true, right? And so first of all, if you just, you know, start there, you know, our closest genetic relative is actually the bonobo monkey. And if you look at sort of what sex looks like among the bonobo monkey, it is a very polyamorous, sex-loving culture (laughs) that, you know, bonobo monkeys, they have sex all the time. They have same gender sex. They have opposite gender sex. They have, uh, you know, if they come into a situation where there's a, you know, a fresh kill and everyone's trying to relax so that they can enjoy the meal and not fight over it, they'll have sex to diffuse tensions first. Um, Sex is a really important part of their culture. It's a, you know, a very egalitarian, you know, there's no, there's, you know, there's not the same kind of sexual assault that you really see in other types of primates. And you know, so what does that say about humans? Well, if they're our closest genetic relative, then this idea that we're supposed to just fall in love with somebody when we're, you know, really young and only stay attracted to that person until we're 80 or 90 years old, you know, is just a little bit unrealistic. There's a wonderful book called Sex at Dawn that I, I highly recommend that sort of talks a lot about kind of the anthropology behind this. And, you know, the, one of the points that the authors make is, if you look at most animals, the number of times that they have, you know, sex, um, you know, the ratio of that of copulations per child is quite low, right? So in other words, most animals are usually having sex when it's just for procreative purposes. But if you look at human beings, and if you look at the bonobo monkey, and believe it or not, if you look at dolphins, if you basically, if you look at animals that have more complex, sophisticated brains, those types of species are having much more sex um, that's happening at all different types of times, not just when the female's fertile, um, which shows that sex is really important and is, is, you know, that we are a sexual species. And um, if you look at, uh, you know, anthropological evidence of hunter-gatherer societies, what you see is that really before 10,000 years ago, before we all moved into these settled city-states, most human being tribes were polyamorous, right? It was this idea that you would have, you know, sex with different partners and everyone, you know, this idea that takes a village was quite literal. It was the idea that you'd have, you know, women would have children and every it would be sort of everyone's job to kind of chip in and help take care of the child, and it was not expected that you would just pair up with one person and be, you know, loyal, so to speak, to that one person for the rest of your life. And, you know, it really wasn't until we moved into, you know, again, these cities, really, that we started to need to, you know, have this idea that we had to control sexuality. And that's really when the institution of marriage came about, because all of a sudden, there's this notion of, oh, well, we can't just have people 
running around having sex with whoever they want because that will just lead to chaos. And how can we have an organized society if, if we don't have this institution of marriage where people are getting married and having children and passing down property? And it really became more of a business contract. But it's not how we're designed, right? We're designed to you know, go through stages where we fall in and out of love. And now that's not to say that monogamy is doomed, right? Because love is something that's intentional. You know, human beings are complex. So it's not the case that you just get to know somebody in the first year and then you know them forever and you've, you know, kind of completed whatever role you're supposed to have with them. If you really have this element of intentionality and get to know someone and put effort into your relationship, it can certainly stay fresh and it can, you know, you can keep that desire and that sort of sexual, you know, firework alive for sure. But don't expect that just because you have this happy relationship where you have that occurring, it doesn't mean that not every now and then someone's not going to kind of drop out of the sky that kind of grabs your attention and makes you think, wow, that person's really attractive. And, and, um, it, and, and what you do with that really kind of depends on what makes sense for you as a person and for you in your own relationship, right? I mean, some people choose to open up their relationship for that reason, um, but a lot of people feel like, you know, they're they're happy in their monogamous relationship and, you know, it might involve just kind of taking a step back and observing that and not panicking and, you know, it's something that might crop up for a reason. It may crop up, you know, just out of chance. Um but I think the authors of the book kind of make a really nice comparison. You know, they say, you know, you may choose to be a vegetarian, right? And being a vegetarian, right, which they're comparing basically to monogamy, may be a superior lifestyle choice, right? It might make you healthier. It may be better for your wallet. It may be more sustainable. Um, but just because you've chosen to be a vegetarian doesn't mean that every now and then that burger isn't going to look awfully good, right? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> or that that bacon isn't going to smell amazing. <laughs> so, And so if you feel yourself smelling the bacon, so to speak, that's normal, right? And and that's not a reason to think, oh my God, there must be something wrong with my marriage or something wrong with my relationship because there isn't. It's just, that's just part of who we are. So how do we, how, how do we get our society to this point? You know, because the people I met who are, feel more liberated or um, are being true to their sexuality, those are some of the, the happiest people I have ever had the pleasure to meet. Like, yeah. I can't imagine that's not a coincidence because it kind of encapsulates who they are. I'm, I'm guessing they are on this journey. And in most cases, they're older. It's taken yeah. a long time. And, and again, I'm coming from an American point of view here. I know in other countries, uh, you know, they know right away, like, and they act on it. But here we're so held back. Like, how do we get because everything you're talking about is awesome. And we should be there and our society <laughs> would be better. It's just how do we get there? Does it does it start with classes like yours? Does it start with education? Does it uh, start with how we, I guess, talk about sex? Because it seems like in our society, we can't even we can't even talk about um, the basics without people getting embarrassed or that you've broken some some rule. It feels like religion and other things have just sort of like killed it uh, from the go. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I, I also think you're right. I mean, I, I obviously think education is such a critical place to start, right? And we have to get to a place where our sex education just isn't just about, you know, pointing to, you know, how not to get pregnant. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> how not to get pregnant. And, you know, and, um, you know, this is how you put a condom on a cucumber. And uh, <laughs> these are ovaries and this is a penis, you know, class over. Uh, so we have to really get to a place where you know, if you look at the Netherlands, I mean, they've done a great job of developing and introducing comprehensive sex education. And so at very young ages, they start talking about relationships and communication and what does it feel like to fall in love with somebody and what do you do if you feel like a relationship's coming to an end is it appropriate to just send a text message telling them things are over or should you actually talk to them in person and how might that feel on the other end um so i think that a lot of you know our education needs to be focused on communication and i also think it just needs to be more sex positive right i mean in the us we tend to focus on everything that can go wrong. You're going to get pregnant. You're going to catch an STI, right? And then there's just a series of pictures that show every, you know, the most gruesome case of every sexually transmitted infection you could possibly catch. And it doesn't talk about the pleasures of sex at all. That's right. It doesn't talk about how to enjoy sex. And when I took sex ed in middle school, we never learned about the clitoris, right? What's the point of the clitoris? All it does is, you know, provide pleasure in females <laughs> right well, no biggie maybe. the clitoris <laughs> no by the way there. is huge yeah. it is it's a whole a huge the clitoris yes, is huge it, yes it's a whole, it has I, feet I, I, and legs it, yes it does it's like a whole wishbone structure it's exactly. a whole wishbone structure and i didn't learn that till i was in medical school oh my i mean see that's <laughs> craziness I have a I have a film that I show uh, the very first week of my class that's called In Search of the G Spot, which is actually a fantastic film. I highly recommend it. And it gets you know because one of the questions that I often get from students is, well, what's the difference between an orgasm that you have that is stimulated from the clitoris versus the G spot? And so, you know, this film is really interesting because it shows how, to your point. The clitoris actually has structures, which is this wishbone structure that wraps around the vagina. And so really a G-spot orgasm is just kind of changing the integrity of the clitoris. They're all kind of the same thing um, and coming back to the same structure. But none of us learned that in middle school or high school. We're not talking about, you know, how the clitoris works with our middle school sex ed teacher unless we came from a really progressive school that just had revolutionary sex education. So I think that's so important. And, um, you know, and then sexual positions and behavior, right? I mean, I, I spend a lot of time just, I show films that actually show different types of couples having actual real sex and the technology you can have now to be able to show that from all different sorts of both internal and external angles is quite extraordinary. Uh, but I think that it's important to really teach people what sex looks like and what it looks like in different ways and shapes and forms and angles. And because, you know, we have this very romantic idea that's kind of forced upon us when we're young, which is that we're going to suddenly one day walk down the street and this person of whatever gender we happen to be attracted to in perfect form is going to fall from the sky and we're going to fall madly in love with them and have incredible sex and live happily ever after in this wonderful marriage or relationship, just like we see in the movies. But we don't teach anyone how to actually achieve that, right? There's, in other words, there's nothing wrong with having an amazing relationship that includes incredible sex as a goal. 
that's a great thing to want to have in your life if that's what you want to have. But don't expect it's not going to come with a certain amount of investment and work and understanding. So yeah, you have to figure out how to have great sex, you know, what, you know, not just what the anatomy is, but what does sexual communication actually look like? And how do you get over being shy, you know, in terms of asking for what you really want and being able to ask your partner for what they really want? So, yeah, so I think that that's absolutely critical. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking about your class, but that's college. We were talking about, you know, high school, middle school. And what is your thought about how parents can have these conversations. Because I think that even parents don't want to have these conversations. And it's sort of like the bird and the bees talk, and it's about how to have babies, but we're not talking about sex. Yeah, or not, or how not to have babies. Or or how not to have babies. Or like, it's about like where you came from. And it's, (laughs) you know, because (laughs) sex is so much more than like, making people, right? It's a huge part of our health and who we are as a species. And so how do we talk about this with our kids? Like, what would you say to families or people with children? Well, I get that question a lot. And I think that it is critical to start early to start really young. I mean, you're usually around ages two, three, four, you'll have children who start to ask questions about bodies and body parts. And it's really important to use actual names, you know, vulva, penis, vagina, breast, not to make up sort of cutesy names because the cutesy names can tend to make it seem like, oh, well, the real name is naughty and dirty. And so that body part must be naughty and dirty. You want to be able to talk about these things frankly and openly. And, you know, when there's a sort of a valuable teaching moment, kind of jump upon it, right? So if it's a question about a body part, explaining that in a really honest, simple, straightforward way. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of great books out there that can be used as launching points that you can either read with your child or you can read them independently and then talk about them. But, you know, the important thing to realize is you're never, you're not going to harm your child, right? More information is always better. Um, Now, that's not to say that if your child is running around with their hands over their ears, that you should pull their hands off their ears and demand, right? You have to kind of wait and follow their cues and make sure that it's, you know, being delivered in a way that is at the times when they are open and receptive to it. I, you know, I think everything is on the table. And I think having conversations about consent early on is critical. And, you know, at an early age, just teaching a child, you know, your body belongs to you and your sphere of privacy belongs to you. And having somebody violate that and touch you in ways or show you pictures of things that you haven't asked to see or you know, making you look at their body parts is not okay. And so, you know, what is the plan going to be if that were to happen? You know, do you have a trusted adult that you can go talk to? But then, you know, along those lines, it also means if you're teaching a child about consent, that, you know, back to this idea of your own sphere of privacy, no, um, you're not required to give anyone a hug who asks for it, right? Now, that can oftentimes rub grandma and grandpa the wrong way if, you know, they're asking for a hug and, you know, explain to them, no, he doesn't want to hug you back and he doesn't have to, you know, or, um, you know, I remember my son, when I had my daughter, she was taking a nap and he wanted to go up and give her a kiss while she was sleeping, right? Which is 
really sweet, but I had to kind of explain to him, you know, when someone's sleeping, you know, you might want to kind of wait until they're awake and, you know, you can say, can I give you a hug and a kiss? And maybe that's a better time to do it than just to, you know, go up and plan it on her. <laughs> you know, and all of these things are, they're just kind of setting the stage for what, you know, sex and sensuality is going to look like, you know, at an older age. Um, but then the one thing I want to just kind of add on to that is, it's rare that you're going to encounter someone where you're like, wow, you know so much about sex. You are amazing at sex. Where did you learn all that? And the person's <laughs> like, I was homeschooled, right? <laughs> 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 right? Like, we need to have formal sex education. I mean, this has to be happening in school. This has to be happening with adults that are not the kid's parents. You know, ideally it's happening when it's the kid is in a group of other kids where, you know, everyone kind of feels embarrassed and is giggling and doesn't just feel like they're being singled out. So, you know, I know here in Seattle, for example, Swedish Hospital has a wonderful sex education uh, program that they do that a lot of people rave about. But I think having formalized sex education uh, that's outside the house is, is really critical here. So I, I took our oldest son to that. Um, children's does one. And um, what you're saying is so true. And it was two days, two nights. And I, you know, I feel like I'm able to talk about sex and, and was, yeah, I, I got this. And man, the minute we got there, I was so uncomfortable and yeah. like, I didn't realize like how difficult this is going to be. And we sat down and one of the first exercises we did was this amazing uh, person who was teaching was like, okay, I want to hear every word for penis. And I want to hear it at the top of your lungs. People are just like, dick, cock, they're just <laughs> like screaming. And if so, if you're in another room hearing this, it's the funniest thing you ever heard. But the minute they did that, I realized what was happening. It just totally chilled the room out like because everyone's giggly and weird and uncomfortable and now yeah. we're just screaming this and then the next day we did the same thing with vagina so you had all these words just blurted out different words that they had heard <laughs> and from then on there was no giggling there was it, people were less embarrassed so it was everything you talked about like just getting that out of the way and mm -hmm. I, I will say too the one of my favorite parenting moments because I wasn't, you know, I was there and talking to him and thinking I was doing the thing and we're driving home and he says, hey, dad, you know, like, here comes a question, you know, and I was like, yeah, man, and he goes, thank you for taking me to that. That really helped wow. me. And I thought I'm going to tell That's everyone amazing. about, yeah, like I, yeah. that means any like weirdness or questions or, or confusion he had that he never has brought up to me was probably answered or dealt with That's in that class. Wonderful. Yeah. So I highly recommend taking your kids to these because it's, um, yeah, it, it was amazing. I, I've heard that uniformly. Yeah. People rave about that class. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Plus, anytime you get to just scream, you know, obscenities in a class. Penis, like, right. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> so I don't often get to sit in a classroom and scream right? penis. So I do. But yes, yeah. that's true. <laughs> Lucky you. Hey, Nicole, is there, we, we want to thank you for being here. Was there anything else that we that we missed that, that you wanted to mention that 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 people should know? I, I've, I have a thousand questions. We could keep you all day. Um, oh, no. I mean, this was such a pleasure. Um, you know, I will say if any of your listeners, um, you know, I do have an Instagram that I answer a lot of these questions on and oh, I, I post topics on this all the time. Um, and that is uh, Nicole underscore the sex prof. <laughs> so you can follow me on Instagram if, and ask me more questions there. But this was a total joy. Thank you so much. I wish we were having more conversations like this in our culture. I think we need them. So thanks for what you're doing. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and again, that's Nicole underscore the sex prof. I'm going to start following you right after this interview. Awesome. <laughs> thank you. Well, we thank you so much for your time. 
My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Bye. She is so smart and so articulate and just an excellent guest. I hope everybody who's listening learned a lot. We sure did. Yeah, Amy, uh, I really loved talking to her and I've been following her since we talked to her on Instagram and I love her account. She she talks a lot about what she talked about here. So clearly we're not going to be taking the class at UW. We have, we have moved on. We are alumni of the UW. But um, if you follow her, it's Nicole underscore the sex prof. Again, just look up Nicole, the sex prof. You'll find her on Instagram. Um, she has a, she's a great, she's getting that account moving. And I highly recommend that follow because she does a lot of the results of her polling that she does and um, some insight that you heard in the interview, you'll get there. A lot of research or book recommendations, that kind of thing. Yeah. She's was there, great. was there for you? I know um, you, you two were on the same wavelength, but was there anything surprising or you were happy to hear her talk about? I was happy to hear talk about masturbation. Yeah. You know, I grew up in purity culture where um, there's no sex before marriage. You're not supposed to masturbate. There's all this stuff. And we don't talk about sex and we make it taboo. And, and then um, by doing that, we're actually causing harm in our culture because people don't know enough about sex and that they don't know enough about their own bodies and they don't know enough about what consent means and they don't know about all the sexual orientations and preferences and things that are completely healthy and normal and um, I think we're causing a lot of harm. But so I was really happy to have her talk about masturbation and the way she talked about it in that, you know, some people think that it's an instead of you know, right. like I've heard of people in relationships who are like, well, my partner masturbates all the time. It doesn't even want to have sex. And really, um, it can be a personal way to release stress and to explore your own sexuality, which is great and explore fantasy, which is great. And fantasy doesn't necessarily equal reality at all. It's a completely and can be a completely different thing. But masturbation actually usually makes people want to have sex more. So if you're feeling like your libido is a little struggling and, and you're not getting enough time with your partner, you're not getting those times when you feel like it, you know, masturbation is a good way to sort of get, I guess the, the habit or the, 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 all the right hormones in your body, like going again. Um, so get to that point. So if you're the partner who's masturbating and your partner's reacting to that, that you're choosing that over me. Um, it's not an instead of, it, it really is an and, right? That's a completely different thing. That really tells you how like, what is uh, it's heteronormative culture is in a way. Does that fall into it or? Oh, I think it's anybody in any kind of relationship, no yeah. matter your gender or your sexual orientation. I think some people get weirded out that their partner masturbates more than them or they don't masturbate or something. But, um, but you that, know, go ahead. What? I was going to say that thought of you're jealous of anything and anyone, and you can even be jealous of your partner being with themselves. Right. 
they think, what's wrong with me? Why do you just masturbate in the shower? You don't, you know, there's nothing. No, but okay. So on that tip though, so life is stressful. And especially when you get into kind of middle age where you're at a certain place in your career that you were hoping was supposed to bring you happiness, right? Like you arrived to the peak of your career or you thought you should have been at a more of a career or something, whatever, whatever you thought was supposed to happen to you when you got into middle age and then it didn't, or it wasn't as satisfying as you thought, uh, depending on where you are in, um, your relationships with people or your sexual partners. Uh, if you have kids, if you, um, you know, when you get older, you start to know more people that pass away or get sick or get diagnosed with something serious and, you know, money and keeping a roof over your head and, uh, I, there's just so much pressure and so much stress. And what happens to people, in, especially in middle age, is their libido starts to fall. And it's not just biological. A lot of it is because of the stress. But then the stress is also making it biological. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like we often talk about mental health or like our psychological being as separate from our biological being. And they're not. They're not separate at all. And and it kind of drives me nuts that we talk about it so separately. But if you're stressed out all the time, you've probably got lots of cortisol in your body running rampant. And that is your stress hormone. It's also the hormone that like wakes you up in the morning. But And it also dumps a bl- lot of sugar in your blood. So if you have high cortisol levels, it's also related to sex hormones. So you're, I mean, I'm very much oversimplifying this. So bear with me. But, you know... Your process of synthesizing things like estrogen and testosterone and progesterone, which are like considered the sex hormones in your body, is in the same pathway of the synthesis of cortisol. So it's like if you are hyper stressed out and your body's making lots of cortisol, there's a really good chance your body's not holding on to a lot of progesterone or testosterone, which are related to libido. That's that's the biological explanation that goes along with the psychological as well. Well, you talked to me uh, about that it's not just menopause. There's manopause. Oh, yeah. Manopause is a thing. Manopause is a thing. Okay. There's so much focus on women going through menopause. But men, there's a manopause. And it's a lot more subtle with women you can flag exactly what the hormones are doing and what their cycles are doing and you can sort of track it and I do this a lot with my patients I work with a lot of like perimenopausal women and with men you know the testosterone starts to drop a little and and you know different things are happening with their blood sugar and and we don't talk enough about this because it, it doesn't cycle in the same way like a woman's a bi- biological woman or biological female's body does. So, but uh, biological males, yes, there's absolutely a menopause. We don't talk enough about it, and I think it's because uh, in sort of a male-dominated culture, I don't think men want to talk about vulnerability and not just being like stallions, like pumped full of testosterone, you know, they don't want to talk about it. Oh, they don't talk about it. And that includes the medical community. Sure. Because the medical community is very male dominated. The medical community won't even, (laughs) in many, is in my, tell me if I'm wrong here, but sex is not talked about very much, let alone masturbation or like, it's not part, it's weird because it's such a huge part of your life. It's a huge part of what makes you feel good too. Right. And how we all got here, um, but it's not talked about as a, as a health issue. Right. Okay. So 
there's plenty of people who have, you know, erectile dysfunction or like zero libido or, you know, like um, biological females who have vaginal dryness and they're, you know, they don't want to have sex. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that we're doing and as doctors prescribing to like help the situation. But I think, I think more importantly, sometimes I find that the medical community, it depends on the doctor and the culture of that doctor themselves mm. that I, you know, doctors, we're all still humans. And I think doctors avoid topics that they're not comfortable with. And they can have a patient who needs that, who needs that kind of health, help, health, help <laughs> that advice uh, or, or that treatment or that, um, and, and it depends on the doctor. They may not be comfortable with it. And I'm not even talking scope right? Like I'm not talking, if I, if something's out of my scope or it's not something I see a lot of or something I really do, I absolutely refer people out. No problem with that at all. I'm not going to try to help somebody I can't help um, when I know I can't. But it's, it's about not wanting to or feeling comfortable talking to people. And so doctors avoid certain and that, topics. You know, that's not on them either. It's our society too. You can't really blame a, a, a doctor for not they may not even know to talk about that if it's not in their comfort mm -hmm. zone or the way they were raised. Cause I doubt in medical school, you get a ton of information on, on this. We, you know, what's interesting is we actually, um, had enhanced and specialized people come in to talk to us about sex and about, and I don't mean to talk about sex. We clearly in medical school, you know how the body works and you know how all that, but I mean the nuances of right. sex and masturbation. And like we were talking with uh, Nicole about BDSM and using that as a kind of therapy. And we talked, you know, but it was like people specialists were brought in to make sure this was covered. Oh. But I think not everybody would be comfortable talking to their doctor about sex. No, that's the other thing. It's on us. I wouldn't think to bring it up with my doctor. It's because yeah. I know my doctor. You know, I feel embarrassed now. And when I talk to my dad, that's, you know, because I, I know my doctor and he, of course, would be okay with it, but I wouldn't think to bring it up as a thing. That's right. And you have to feel safe. Yeah. You have to feel safe. And you're, and the medical professional who is in charge of your care, you have to feel safe with them. But, it, but if I did talk to my doctor, Amy, could, could I get a prescription for masturbation? Oh, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, right. I've prescribed it. You, you have. I have because, okay, so listen, so sometimes I have patients who, you know, they're in that midlife where life is really, really stressful. They have a low libido and maybe they have very negative thoughts about their partner at this point in life. Like the, there's a lot of stress in the relationship and they say, yeah, we're just, I'm just not having any sex. And I say, I always say, what about with yourself? And there's always a pause. Oh, like they didn't think about that. I say, well, why don't you try some masturbation and at least you can be having sex with yourself, even if you just, if you aren't into it with your partner. And, and when I first started that sentence, I was agreeing with you because I thought you meant me. I thought you were, <laughs> <laughs> I have prescribed that, John. And I was saying, yeah, you actually have. You should go masturbate more, John. <laughs> okay. <laughs> A little more spirit award we have a full song coming up in a minute so make sure you're listening love this band out of seattle put out their first record in 2018 and this new one lunatic house is great 
Um, we want to thank some people today. Amy, we want to thank our guest. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Nicole McNichols, Associate Teaching Professor at UW. Again, follow her on Instagram. Look for the sex prof here in Seattle. And we'd like to thank Michael Lerner, Telekinesis, for the theme music. And, of course, we want to thank Ruinous Media, Joe, Pat, and Chris for putting up with us every week. Make sure you tell everyone you know about this podcast. Uh, you are our marketing uh, get people to subscribe. You can say, hey, I just listened to this podcast where they were talking about prescribing masturbation. You should probably <laughs> listen. It also has some good music and advice. And you can follow us on the Instagrams at, at the doctor and the DJ. Yeah, that thing's taking off now. We I gotta, think we have like 200 followers. <laughs> well, we've been focused on our own Instagram accounts, but we have an official one for the doctor and the DJ. So things are picking up. Uh, so thank you to everybody who subscribes, uh, spreads the word. And again, check us out online, thedoctorandthedj.com. We want to leave you with a full song from Spirit Award. This is my favorite off the record called Lily of the Valley. <laughs>